Hello, and welcome to episode 22 of the Safe Art Policy Matters podcast, student-athletes running into the NLRB. Today, I will note that we have a very special guest whose name our listeners might recognize if they also happen to read our Policy Matters newsletter, Chuck Guzak, who is one of my fantastic co-authors. Chuck's an associate in our D.C. office. He's an expert when it comes to all things labor in the NLRB. Now, I'm very excited about this specific episode. Anyone who knows me probably knows that I'm a huge sports fan. Indeed, if this was a webinar and you all could see my office, you would see a huge poster of Matt Cain, former pitcher for the San Francisco Giants. So I've always been of the personal opinion that student athletes should get more than they're getting currently under sort of their scholarship room and board sort of rubric. But to that end, I think that SCOTUS recently came down, SCOTUS, I say SCOTUS, I mean the Supreme Court of the United States, of course. It recently came down with a really big holding. And I think a lot of our listeners will sort of understand more than sort of the more nuanced topic that we'll delve into when we start talking about the NLRB. And to that end, Chuck, in the NCAA versus Alton case, what did the court hold in that case? So thanks very much, Dan. It's it's great to be here. Um, long time listener, first time joiner here. Perfect. <laughs> so yeah, the Supreme Court took up the issue there of whether the NCAA's restriction on the university and college's ability to provide certain educational related expenses was in violation of the federal antitrust law. And specifically, they were looking at certain educational benefits like I believe there were free laptops, paid internships. I think free instruments were also um, discussed um, in the context of, of music courses. But ultimately, the Supreme Court decided that the NCAA's restrictions did, in fact, run afoul of federal antitrust law. And we got a rare 9-0 decision in that case. Which it's very rare for right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think I'm not sure it surprised a ton of people, but surprising to see a 9-0 line on any case, especially yeah. one, you know, that actually affects an issue that, that most people can relate to and understand. I will say that notably in that case, Justice Brett Kavanaugh had a concurrence. He signed on to the, the 9-0 opinion, of course, but he had his own concurrence in which he went a bit further in saying that the case did not address the question of directly paying athletes. But he suggested in his concurrence that that would really be a possibility and that the NCAA's ability to restrict that could also be legally problematic. And I think he used the phrase fair share to imply that, you know, college athletes, it's hard to prevent them from a fair share of this business when, you know, coaches are making upwards of seven, eight, nine million dollars a year. And he also even contemplated in his concurrence that the possibility of collective bargaining as a way to achieve that end. So that was an interesting sort of foreshadowing of what may be to come. Yeah, which is which is super interesting. I think we're all surprised by the 9-0. We're all surprised by the currents from a Donald Trump appointee that sort of opened the door to, I guess, more regulation of student-athlete compensation, which we're going to get to how this has sort of bled into the NLRB when we start talking a little bit about the Jennifer Brusso's memo. But before we get to that, I think a good starting point, I guess, for our listeners is the Bethany College, Columbia University, and Northwestern University cases the NLRB held, which aren't specifically related to this issue, but do provide some context. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, issues regarding colleges and universities and the National Labor Relations Act's applicability to them are kind of a political football. They, they yeah. switch back and forth over the years. For example, Columbia University, one of the cases you referred to, 
was a 2016 case under President Obama's NLRB that essentially held that graduate student teaching assistants were, in fact, employees of the university. And it also extended employee status to undergraduate researchers. Now, prior to that, there was a case called Brown University in which the board held the opposite under a Republican board. Prior to that, NYU, they held the same thing under a Democrat board. It, It flips back and forth. But as for the other two, Bethany College, that was a case in which the board revised its test for whether college or university could be exempt from coverage of the National Labor Relations Act because it's a religious institution. Now, the National Labor Relations Act only covers private companies and private institutions, so public colleges are not included there. But there's also an exemption where an institution is a religious organization or qualifies for that exemption under the law. Under the Obama administration, there was a case called Pacific Lutheran in which it examined whether the Pacific Lutheran University was exempt from the coverage of the National Labor Relations Act as a religious institution. In that case, they established a test that looked at the specific duties of the employees in question and whether they held themselves out as religious officials. So it was a much more stringent test for exemption than what we're talking about in Bethany College here which is as long as it's a, quote, bona fide religious institution, it's nonprofit, it holds itself out as a religious institution to the world, it's exempt from coverage of the act. So that actually is an interesting decision here in the college athletics context, because a significant portion of the Big East are private, religiously affiliated institutions. So that could be an issue. And the Northwestern University case was a case in which it was a representation case. So the football players at Northwestern University filed a petition to organize under a union using the National Labor Relations Board's processes. Now, the NLRB, and this is a, a tired pun, but the NLRB punted on this case and they, uh, they decided not to assert jurisdiction and cited a few reasons for that. One, they said because it's just a single institution, it wouldn't have a substantially significant effect on commerce. They said it would actually lead possibly to increased instability in labor markets because, you know, the Big Ten has 14 teams and college football has, I think, upwards of 120 in the FBS. But with only one of them having a unionized labor force kind of didn't make sense at that time, or at least that's what. Yeah, I mean, Chuck, I played played college football for the University of California at Davis, and I guarantee you nobody has even heard of that football team outside of this small area in Sacramento. So that would apply too, right? There's just, there are so many different institutions. There really are. Yeah. Um, and, and not to mention the fact that, that, as we already said, you know, none of the state universities would be covered and state laws vary pretty widely on how this could be approached. So it was a decision that I think no one was really happy with because it wasn't, it didn't definitively decide the issue of whether athletes at, at certain colleges and certain revenue producing sports could be employees. But it sort of gave a jumping off point that the board is maybe going to take up in the future in light of other developments. Yeah, and it seems like Jennifer Bruce's most recent memo is, is relevant to that point exactly. And before talking about that memo, I was thinking about the Northwestern case. Like, obviously, all these cases can be used as precedent as well if a case does get in front of the NLRB. Speaking to that, uh, Jennifer Bruce, who's chief counsel for the NLRB, obviously a little bit of controversy around that specific issue. But she issued a memo about this issue specifically, which reinstates a memo, uh, GC-1701 from the Obama administration that was rescinded during the Trump administration. Chuck, what can you tell us about uh, what Jennifer Brusso did in this most recent memo? So, yeah, in the most recent memo, she reinstated the existing memo, which addressed, more broadly speaking, statutory protections provided to students, student-athletes, and employees at colleges and universities, where this new memo, which I believe is 
2108. She digs a little more deeply into the issue of whether athletes can be employees in certain revenue producing sports. And she goes beyond just football, um, where the Northwestern University discussion in the prior memo really did just discuss football players at Division I FBS schools, private universities, and colleges. Not UC Davis, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) But this new memo also included, she is taking the position in the new memo that in addition to football players in those contexts, other similarly situated players at academic institutions are also employees as, as far as she's concerned. And most people interpret that to mean any athletes basically in Division One revenue producing sports. So that could be basketball, that could be hockey, that could be football. You know, exactly where that begins and ends isn't super clear, according to the memo. But that's one of the major changes that she... So just just re- I mean, that's a really interesting point because how are they going to, you know, enforce that? Because most of the gym... I mean, football obviously is a male-only sport. Male baseball, probably second most revenue with male basketball. And then some female basketball, female softball it has probably generating revenue, but I wonder if there's also going to be some kind of discrimination context in this where you pay some but don't pay others. That might and, be and another issue that's going to come up later as well. And, and that's definitely an issue that, that you know people are anticipating in this space. And you know certainly Title IX lawsuits could be an issue. Yeah. Um, also could be an issue of schools to avoid the issue, unfortunately, shutting down certain sports yeah. programs. That's been one of the major criticisms leveled at the notion of paying players at colleges and universities is that it might lead to fewer sports. Interesting. And you, and you, I mean, you obviously, this, this is your GM, right? You read these memos. In what way does this memo differ from or expand upon the memo from the Obama administration? Is there anything beyond just expanding it to sports outside of football? No, the, she also recognizes um, or takes the position in that case that misclassifying athletes who should be considered employees as student athletes. And we know the NCAA has used that term over the years as sort of a defense to the claim that that athletes are employees. Misclassification in and of itself, GC Abruzzo is taking the position that that's a violation of the law. And we know she's looking to change the law in that area because there's an existing case called Velux Express in which the board held that misclassifying an employee as an independent contractor is not per se a violation of the law. That was a Trump board decision. Yeah. And so she's asked that any cases involving facts like that be submitted to what's called the division of advice, which is essentially, and we don't have time to go into super great detail here, but it's essentially a way for her to identify cases that are vehicles for the board to change the law. So she's looking yeah. to change the law in favor of there being an independent violation where you misclassify someone, A, as an independent contractor, but now under this new memo as a student athlete rather than an employee. Interesting. It's going to be be a fascinating term at the NLRB. I just have one more question, and you might not know the answer. Uh, As as her memo is asking all the field offices to bring these cases in front of the NLRB, do you know of any cases with the right factual predicate that are currently percolating that might make it in front of the board? I am not personally aware of any, but um, to the extent that any cases have been submitted to the Division of Advice in response to her memo, nothing about them at this point would be public yet, unfortunately, because the investigation process is a bit of a black box. Certain pleading documents end up being public on the website, but ultimately until an administrative law judge hears the case and issues a decision, we won't really have further clarification on that 
I wouldn't think it would be super difficult for her to find cases like that, um, yeah. especially with that order to submit them to advice. But I unfortunately don't have personal knowledge of any. Well, to that end, thank you all for tuning in. If this is a fascinating topic that's going to get, I think, a good amount of coverage over the next couple of years. Chuck, thank you so much for joining me. And to all the listeners, thank you as well. 